Indian Super League is so young that to look at it would make you believe that football was born in India three years ago. But it wasn't. That's my guest, Supriya Nair, who I caught up with on Skype. She's a journalist, an observer of Indian football and politics, and of course a football fan. Calcutta hosts the oldest derby in all of Asia, which has 90,000 or 100,000 football fans filling the stands every season for the big matches. Let's just take a minute to think, what does it mean when 100,000 people would show up in Calcutta for a derby in India, the land of cricket? When you've got that many people and when you've got that much noise, you know that something more is going on than just football. The two teams are Mohun Bagan and East Bengal. Mohun Bagan are the oldest team in the city. They're the team of the traditional Bengali elite, playing first against the British and then against other Indian teams. Football provided a different space, a cultural space to hit back at the British. East Bengal represent the newcomers. A large number of Bengalis since the 1920s and 1930s have been streaming from what is now Bangladesh into the city of Kolkata. East Bengal club automatically becomes a kind of focus point, a rallying cry. Oh, this is part of the homeland we left behind. And the relationship between these two groups of Bengalis has not always been peaceful. They've been struggling for status, public space, a place in the labour market, and above all, on the football field. For almost 80 years, they've been playing out this social and economic conflict on the pitch. And these days, it has acquired the trappings of European fandom. We have ultras, we have music, we have drums. And we have some of the most intense crowds seen anywhere in Asia. I'm David Goldblatt, and welcome back to Game of Our Lives. It's fair to say that scenes like the Kolkata Derby have traditionally been the exception, not the rule in India. Football struggled to capture the national imagination. In fact, all the money, all the glitz, all the glamour, it's all gone to cricket. Be a part of the action. Cricket is king. Cricket's so good, you'd do anything to be a part of it. The 2015 Pepsi IPL. Ten years ago saw the launch of the Indian Premier League, a money-spinning cricket tournament which brings the world's best players to India. Entrepreneurs worked out how to make a lot of money from the game, specifically from sponsorship and television advertising. It's a glittering spectacle designed to be consumed by the huge new middle-class audience in India. Proudly brought to you by Bidvest Car Rental. And yet football has never really gone away. In some small enclaves, it has even prospered. Goa in the west, Kerala in the south, Bengal in the east. And there are rumblings of a comeback. Can football in India take a page out of Cricket's book? Can it find that formula of financial backing, big audiences, sporting quality, an amazing commercial spectacle? And so I asked Supriya about the possibilities of football staking a claim in the land of cricket. 
Supriya, it strikes me that Indian cricket and above all the Indian Premier League, the short form of the game, the 2020, has become without question the world's commercial cricket spectacular. The Indian Premier League it doesn't look like a sporting event anywhere else. It could only really be in India. I wonder, you know, what do you make of the Indian Premier League as a commercial spectacular? And what has football in India got to learn from it? What really happened to elevate cricket into the stratosphere and to have it take over the Indian imagination entirely was a little bit uh, similar to what happened to European football. How do you see that? How does that work? The guy who floated the idea... Um, uh, you know, an, an entrepreneur who's also sort of a local cricket bigwig, uh, who's now a, a multi-squillionaire in, in exile, hiding from the authorities. Name name, Supriya. His name is Lalit Modi. Lalit Modi, who indeed I met in his personal box at uh, Lord's Cricket Ground once. Oh, I thought that. you're a very smart cookie, but where I'm going to keep a very firm hold of my wallet while I'm here. Well, if he invited you back to his uh, to his pad in Montenegro, where he entertains by the shores of you know some alpine lake, um, you don't have to, you, you you wouldn't have had to turn up with your wallet at all. Uh, just to check so, what was his vision? How did he connect the success of the English Premier League football to the cricket competition in India? The idea, I think, was to make tickets reasonably available to the Indian upper middle class to make it family friendly so that women and children would feel comfortable coming into the stadia and you know people who aren't necessarily wedded to cricket wouldn't mind giving up 3 or 4 hours of their lives to be entertained you know like a gladiatorial spectacle because as our man Silvio Berlusconi discovered himself very early on in Italian football in the 80s people on TV will watch a sport if there are people in the stadium watching the sport and they sure have got people into the stadium in the uh, in the Indian Premier League and with a kind of atmosphere and an environment that is incredibly televisual and pretty intense. That's right. But it was very much the success of the English Premier League that gave Lalit Modi, as it did, I suppose, many kinds of sporting entrepreneurs around the world, the idea that a sport could be deconstructed and repackaged into this kind of entertainment that would make sense even to someone who didn't know anything about the sport. Now, one of the reasons I think that they were able to do that so effectively is that, as you say, you know, the nature of the game itself here, 2020 cricket, incredibly short, all action, no boring bits, but with gaps for ads. Terrific. That works for commercialised television. Football is another matter. And until they start breaking it down into like five minute segments, it just doesn't work in the same way. So I'm interested to know and to talk about the Indian Super League. And the Indian Super League is the attempt to produce a commercial football version of the IPL. So how has the Indian Super League, which I think was founded in 2014, um, was its first season. Tell me a little bit about the background to that and what has it learned from the IPL and is it working? Uh, the problem is that football administration in India has been so patchy that there's never been unbroken league activity. And so it remains to be seen how committed the ISL is to pouring in the millions of rupees that will be needed to keep this thing afloat for the next few years while the audiences slowly trickle into the stadiums and while people slowly get together to 
to watch this on a Saturday or Sunday. I wanted to ask you on that. Do you think having so many cricketers as the owners of the club franchises in the Super League is helping? And I was really struck when I started looking at the Indian Super League because, okay, it's not that unusual to have an American-style league where people are buying the franchises and you have business consortia that are looking at it as a commercial uh, operation. But it's very rare to make that the people who own the clubs virtually the stars of the show. I was so struck when watching the opening ceremony of the uh, ISL in 2014. Is there you've got Seshan Tendulkar, the greatest Indian cricketer ever, next to David James, the English goalkeeper. So that's about two foot difference. So that was pretty good. And the crowd are going wild, you know, and Seshan Tendulkar owns whatever percentage of the Kerala, I think it's the Kerala team, the Blasters, that he owns a little a little bit of. And, you know, um, Sulav Ganguly is a member, is also owns a chunk. What does that tell us about the role of cricket and celebrity is that those are the guys they're bringing in to the football to get the punters in? I think it absolutely says a lot about celebrity culture. You may remember that when the IPL was floated, um, many of its biggest owners, you know, kind of the showrunners and guys in the stands, were Hindi movie stars. So I think marketers see uh, transference as their as, as golden for them and that some of the stardust that Bollywood stars bring in to this new format of cricket that people weren't, you know, weren't necessarily sure would take off um, was going to work for them. And I think that's exactly the idea that's been photocopied onto the ISL. Only this time you get other star athletes, India's only star athletes, um, to come in and, and throw a little fairy dust over, <laughs> over the proceedings. Were you around for in uh, in India for the uh, men's under seventeen World Cup last year? I was I was here. Yes. And tell me, this is the first time India has hosted a big global football tournament of any kind. Now, were it to happen, I'm afraid to say in England, the average punter would be pretty disinterested and be turning their nose up at the mere under 17s. But in India, my understanding is this was a big deal. I wonder if you can give us a sense of, you know, was there any sense of football fever, if you like, in India during the tournament? So... Again, because football is so patchily followed in India, uh, in Bombay, where I am, the Under-17 World Cup made no difference to the average citizen's life. In Calcutta, on the other hand, where uh, I think the final was held, the stadium, Salt Lake Stadium, which can uh, accommodate 90,000 people, was packed to the rafters because these people were there out of you know pure love for football. And more than anything... Um, I'm, I'm not saying that this is because there are no football fans in Bombay, but the football fans in Bombay are, you know, are, are kids who like Manchester United and 30-somethings who weep over Arsenal into their beers in expensive <laughs> sports bars. Oh, so no difference from London then? <laughs> you, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference. Um, while in Calcutta, this sort of millennial football fandom is really just a, a thin layer on a very deep culture of love for football of uh, and of loving football for its own sake, where sort of the models of fandom that are followed, uh, I think, are closer to the kind that you'd see in uh, in South American countries, where you have, you know, men just turn up to the stadium because they want to, because they want their eyes to rest on a game of football. 
and you know they'll they'll go anywhere for a bit of for, for a bit of the pretty game i wanted to ask <laughs> you i mean along alongside you know these long-term die-hard football fans in the regional strongholds of the game there also seems to be for the first time a kind of almost a kind of ultra football culture beginning to urge i'm thinking particularly in bangalore for the first time you know you've actually got an ultra group following the local team you've even got the first kind of away fans which is no joke in india because the distances between most clubs are pretty gigantic um and we even hear you know um the emergence of a kind of fan culture that invents its own chants. I particularly like that of uh, the Mumbai team who chant um, uh, about the regional snacks. So when uh, the Calcutta guys are in, it's what is better than Rasgula, Vada Pav, which for those of you who don't know, is Mumbai's kind of standard savoury snack, I would say. And this is a kind of English kind of terrace wit. I wonder, is that something you're beginning to come across as you observe the game in India? a kind of indigenous sort of fan culture of course drawing from elsewhere but focus now on Indian soccer I find that quite amusing and charming <laughs> uh, I think we'll see more of it as time goes by as you say it is very much borrowed from what many of these people have internalized from long years of following the Premier League and that's fine it's great to be able to take these modes of fandom and to take this this humor and even to take this way of being, I mean, God, who calls themselves an ultra in this day and age, you know, uh, like most Italian football fans don't do that. They'd be embarrassed. But, uh, but it's lovely to see people taking this and making it their own. What's very striking to me about chants like Vada uh, Pao is better than Raskula is how different it is from the kind of local league fandom that's developed over decades for cricket. As you know, Bombay has a very strong local cricket team. And outside of the IPL, which is very new, we've had a domestic circuit going on in cricket for generations now. And Bombay fans on that circuit are just, I mean, they're mean bastards. You know, mm -hmm. they're like they're like the most humorless, uh, sort of raging neurotics you're likely to find in a cricket stadium anywhere in the world. <laughs> so, so not unlike Arsenal fans, really. <laughs> Is that right? I thought all Arsenal fans did. Uh, well, the know. raging neurotic, anyway. That's <laughs> that. That's how. That's how I find. Yeah, and I suppose. Well, and I suppose they haven't had much to smile about recently. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I can see that they might be angry as well. Um, so to see the the transformation of the of the Bombay fan, such as he is, from this kind of hard bitten, you know, kid uh, shaking his fist and like trying to freak out opposition batsman to this it frankly kind of cuddly figure who you know is going to like be back at his desk in a suit and a tie and well if not in a jacket then at least in a tie and loafers the next day is uh well it says something about the times it's interesting that you know both of us i think tend to refer you know to football fans in india it, it's him it's it's a man and of course this is not always the case. And I wonder if you can tell us, you know, to what extent are women finding a place in the crowd in football in India, uh, if at all? And to what extent are women actually beginning to play the game in India? Women's football in India has historically had even less support than men's football, which is saying a lot. Uh, I mean, if you remember, we didn't go to the World Cup in, uh, was it 1950? That's um, right. 
the famous story is of course because we wanted to play barefoot and we didn't which was which isn't true it was just you know the uh the administration then just went at ah, the world cup it's not as important as the olympics you guys don't need to go incredible so what is what 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 are they thinking that's amazing that they should so dismiss it out of hand but in it was 1950. true isn't it in 1950 the world cup was just sort of i mean who even knew that you know they they hit the trophy uh under, under that guy's bed during the world war <laughs> it didn't really mean i mean and, and it didn't really it, particularly i think to asians uh, who saw the olympics and who saw these giant world tournaments um as stages for them for themselves to assert their identity and who saw them as real competition but sure and of course you're of course india has had extraordinary success at the olympics i mean from 1928 onwards they are the world men's field hockey champions at the olympics and this is a very big deal and kind of gives that game a whole kind of nationalist anti-colonial cachet that football i suspect couldn't couldn't really compete with yeah and it's it's still the you know the, as the state would have it hockey field hockey is still the national game of india so it's not cricket Okay, I do feel that the Indian state then might have a little bit of catching up to do with reality. <laughs> but 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 we knew we knew that anyway. Um let me ask you about the World Cup. You know, football imagines itself the global game, this extraordinary universal and otherwise fragmented world. But it remains the case that India and its 1.5 billion people, let alone China, will not be present at this World Cup and indeed India never has. China has been present once. Does it in any way undermine or limit the claims of FIFA, the World Cup and the football community to universalism? I think in fact it was your work that helped me see this more clearly which is that the word global doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as universal it doesn't even necessarily as we know mean the same thing as international and certainly the way fifa uses it it's very much uh, a sort of 21st century buzzword that perhaps has more to do with how football as a product or the world cup as a product is consumed around the world than it does about how many people have access to it and how many countries get to play it and which kinds of countries get to play it um for a long time i knew india and china and asian countries in general have been on fifa's radar as uh, you know these giant sloshing receptacles filled with uh, with you know eyeballs to watch the games and filled with money to pay into the coffers of the game but they've been beaten back because the culture of the sport itself has apparently failed to take root in many asian countries and certainly i think between china and the persian gulf you know there's like it's a, it's a, it's a bit empty i mean everyone knows that like the world cup balls are manufactured in pakistan but but what else yeah this seems also to be changing my sense is you know in thailand 6% of gdp gets gambled during the world cup such as the mania and now <laughs> president xi jinping as we know has made a central policy of the people's republic of china you know to host and win the world cup and pretty damn soon from what i can see so i really get the sense that there's there's a change in in asia in that regard both the football in general and the world cup i I'm wonder what if i may if i may stop you there and i i'd love to know what you make of this um what we're seeing in china essentially given that president xi is crazy about the sport is perhaps the biggest experiment yet in seeing whether state control can actually make a country good at football um in Absolutely. india perhaps a different kind of you know a much more 
uh, a much more tenuous experiment is underway. There's some state intervention, but uh, but that can be superseded by the market. And with things like the Indian Super League and, you know, entrepreneurs who are just willing to pour money into the sport and perhaps non-profit organizations that will establish goals like qualification in 20 years and then see how many athletes can be roped in to actually make that happen. Um, we're perhaps seeing whether the market can make us good at football. Well, that does strike me. One of the differences between, you know, Indian and Chinese development generally is the Chinese state has proved itself um, you know, however authoritarian and is pretty good developmental agency, but the Indian state, uh, certainly at the national level, is is not quite yet that. But on the other hand, it has this extraordinary dynamic um, private sector, you know, the Lalit Modis of this world, who out of the blue can create the IPL and I note take it to South Africa at a moment's notice and keep the show on the road when necessary. Um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think the Chinese... It's not just a state project, of course, in the sense that the way China works is that once the private sector hears what the boss up the top wants, everybody's running around like crazy to try and, um, you know, manage upwards. And it seems to me this is one of the reasons you've had this unbelievable outflow of Chinese capital. They are now part owners of AC Milan, 70 percent, as well as a whole slew of clubs in England. And this is all private sector dudes in China going, "Okay, the president wants football. Let's just get out there and do it without really thinking about, you know, whether that's a sustainable business practice or not. You've described in some of your work uh, the World Cup in India as a kind of dream time. I'm really interested to know what is how is it in, in India when the World Cup is on? Is it just folks like you who are glued to their television screen or is it becoming a, uh, a much bigger and much more public experience? No, I think the the anomaly, as it may seem to many people in Europe, uh, for whom the World Cup can, in fact, now arguably be seen as a distraction from, you know, from from local football or from continental football. Uh, for us, the World Cup has always been a major event, and this, I think, harkens back to a time before football was the global game, when it was really just like many other sports and like the Olympics, for example, like many other tournaments. It was. It was internationalist, and you had all these countries on either side of the Iron Curtain, as well as the non-aligned countries that India very much saw itself a part of, dying to get in on a piece of the action, feeling very much like they were part of, uh, of a connected world because they were tapping into, into the spirit of the game once every four years. So there's a long history of watching and loving football, watching and loving the World Cup in India. Calcutta's Brazil and Argentina fans are, are famous around the world. I was going to ask, who do Indians tend to root for at the uh, at the World Cup? The generations before mine were pretty much wedded to the idea of third world success. So the South American teams were always big on our radar. And our hearts, you know, beat for uh, Pele and, and Vico. Uh, and Gabriel Batistuta, uh, uh, this, you know, if I, I have to admit, for Maradona. Uh, that's on this show. That's virtually compulsory. Is it? <laughs> oh yes. No, we love we love Maradona on the game of our lives. Oh God, we love Maradona so much that a big jewelry brand in Kerala actually invited him over two or three years ago to model for for their gold jewelry. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to wear the earrings or the necklaces and stuff. And he just had to stand there looking authoritative and famous. Um, okay, like, but for women's jewellery. 
<laughs> not even men's jewellery. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that boy will do anything, won't he, for a few bucks? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, so I think uh, the advent of the EPL changed things a little bit. So there are a lot of people in their 20s now who will claim to support England. You're joking. On the basis of the English Premier League, one of the least English institutions in the whole of England, 75% non-English football players, hardly any English managers owned by the global super rich, and they're tapping into England. Lord preserve us, Supriya. Well, as you know, that is the way into the heart of uh, into the heart of, of faraway lands. I absolutely love this. This is the worst yeah. possible choice one well, could if- possibly make of which team to support. What do they? I'm really how how are they coping with the uh, relentless disappointment of being an England fan in international football? Well, I hope <laughs> I hope they're hating every minute of it. <laughs> and who do you support? Italy. Who aren't even in the World Cup this time. I know. So what are you going to do this time around? Oh, um, now I, f- I, f- I feel like I can be a true neutral. But there's no such thing, really, is there? I mean, our, exactly. Our loyalties are struck within minutes of a match. And, uh, and I, will, I will happily support whoever, whoever takes my fancy. And is there anybody you just wouldn't support? England. <laughs> Anyone but England. I'm good God. Look at the rubbish they have to offer. I know? tried. Not and you know, to. like the British Empire was was actually not a very English enterprise. It was like sort of staffed and administered by Scotsmen. I mean, it's you know, it's Spanish and Italian and Portuguese managers who are taking the English football empire to the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, for for heaven's sake. <laughs> well. I don't think you're in any danger of seeing England perform particularly well at this World Cup. One last thought. What's your favourite goal of all time and why? Does it have to be a World Cup goal? It could be any goal in any format, in any competition that you like. My favourite goal of all time was struck at the 2007 Champions League final. A hard-bitten, ugly, boring affair played out between Liverpool and AC Milan in Athens as a kind of shadow replay of that spectacular 2005 game in Istanbul, which, you know, kind of, which caused the sun to rise from the West. And after which no Milan fan's heart was ever the same again. It came in the sort of the last uh, third of the match when the sly, true-like people in Zagi, who has a piece of my heart forever, because he's just so wily and hardworking, and uh, you know, represents a kind of a kind of grit on the football field that men of genius are never going to be able to show us. Um, so this guy kind of just slithers in in the middle of a passage of play and appears to handle the ball, but doesn't really. And then str- just kind of taps in the winning goal of that match in the ugliest fashion possible. And I love that goal not only for the satisfaction it gave me but also because it was such a symbol of how perverse and how ironic and how hilarious football is. I will, I will remember it always. Pipo Enzaghi, a man born virtually offside. So what's it like being an AC Milan fan in a country many time zones away from Italy? There must be a lot of late and lonely nights for you. I certainly feel like my definitive connection with AC Milan is broken if I'm not alone in a darkened room 
possibly weeping silently into a pillow. Uh, it isn't like there aren't other Milan fans in India, as there are of every successful European club uh, in a country of a billion people. But the joy that I get from having a second screen uh, with me, of being able to tweet and text with friends around the world, and of being able to scream silently and in, in, in text into my phone, is pretty great, I have to say. What sort of time of night is all this going on for you? In the heyday of Milan's European successes, uh, when they were in the Champions League knockout every year for a while, this was a long time ago now, I realise, uh, it certainly stretched into the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, I'm thinking like it's four o'clock in the morning for you with a kind of nine, nine o'clock, kind of ten o'clock finish in Europe. <laughs> yes, it is. And depending on whether you were crushed or uh, euphoric, of course, you know, you just sort of pass the night sleepless and then you'd like stumble out blinking like a baby bird into the sunshine, eyes streaming, heart pounding. Ah, wouldn't exchange it for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope Milan's form improves sufficiently that you can get some, uh, you could get some broken sleep and some late nights again when they're back in the Champions League. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure to talk through these things. I'm looking forward to talking through it all again during the World Cup. I hope we can connect and hear a little bit about Indian dream time and we'll see how Argentina are doing. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Supriya Naya. Next week on Game of Our Lives, from India to Italy a country where questions about national identity and who is truly Italian are played out on the pitch. There are people at football who chant, Garibaldi, you're a disgrace. You should never have formed Italy during a football chant. Uh, and a lot of this comes out as racism because Italy is a, is a country very much not at ease with itself. And that's still going on today. It's so amazing, isn't it, that there are people in Italy chanting at football matches, Garibaldi, you're a disgrace. Can I just say, just like absorb how f***ing crazy that is. That a debate, you know what, 170 years old about the nature of Italian reunification is being debated in a football chart. Anyway, my guest is the historian John Foote. And we'll be talking all about Italy, politics and football. That's next week on Game of Our Lives. In the meantime, check out our website, gameofourlives.fm. Subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. Speaking of which, if you know someone who would like this show, do them and do us a favour. Tell them. This show is a production of Jetty Studios. Our senior producer is Raja Shah. Our producer and sound designer is Meredith Hodinot. Our editors are Casey Miner and Kanish Thoreau. Kiana Mogadem does the social media. Graylin Brashear does audience development. Graphic design is from Sophie Feller and podcast operations from Jordan Bailey. Game of Our Lives is recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK, with engineering by Richard de Mowbray. Our music is from Bang Data. You can hear more from them at bangdata.com. Our executive producer is Julie Kane and our general manager is Kayser Campwala. I'm David Goldblatt and I'll see you next week. <laughs>